This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It's a great pleasure now for me to introduce our moderator for today, Ashley Kahn. Ashley is a Grammy-winning American music historian, journalist, producer, and educator. He teaches at New York University's Clive Davis Institute for Recorded Music and has written two books on two legendary recordings, Kind of Blue by Miles Davis and A Love Supreme by John Coltrane, and one book on a legendary record label, The House That Train Built, The Story of Impulse Records. Um, His writing has garnered three ASCAP Deems Taylor Awards, three Grammy nominations, and then in 2015 he was awarded a Grammy for his album notes to the John Coltrane release, offering live at Temple University. So please join me in welcoming Ashley Kahn. Thank you, Dan. It's an honor to be here, guys. I I just want to add my thanks to UCSD, San Diego Public Library, and to you guys, because we realize that on a sunny afternoon like today, you have a choice of where to be. There are many things going on here. I think you made the right choice. Um, It's an honor, as I said, to be asked to moderate this. Um, The idea behind taking one album and letting it serve as a doorway into an artist's career, an artist's musical catalog, um, is something that I have worked on many, many times in my uh, career, both as articles and, of course, two books, one on Kind of Blue and one on the uh, great recording by John Coltrane, uh, Love Supreme. And so this is like right down my alley. And what makes a great album as far as um, being able to jump down that rabbit hole is, of course, great stories. And there are so many great stories associated with Tijuana Moods and Charles Mingus. Charles Mingus, of course, being just one step before the greatest of the great legends as far as modern jazz goes. So if we think about the, 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 the holy pantheon, if you will, of modern jazz being, of course, John Coltrane, Miles Davis, Thelonious Monk, just one step below, I believe, is Charles Mingus. And in some ways, it's kind of undeserving because what Charles challenged himself with as far as his musical creation, his own career, and the way that he ran it, was uh, in many ways much more forward-looking than some of the other players who were contemporaneous to him. And so we're going to cover all these topics. Um, As far as Tijuana moods, I know that uh, Dan and I wanted to say just one or two things to help frame it for why one album and why this album uh, today. Well, this, uh, this, the reason I'm on the stage today, is not just introducing, is that this is a project that I've been working on for nearly a year. Um, Steve Schick had this wonderful theme for his festival here, which was to talk about music and have music performed that has a great sense of percussion and that has a sense of place and location. You know, it's, it's about a place. And when I heard this um, many months ago, I thought this is the time for Tijuana Moods to come to San Diego. It's an album that is revered. It's uh, considered to be one of Mingus's great works, I think. 
Um, but it's music that doesn't get performed that often, or at least some pieces of it don't get performed often. Um, so it was really almost a commissioned tour that got put together around this concept. And uh, I think um, the other thing, it's interesting, I discovered in this process that, that Mingus was really a Los Angeles artist. He lived his first 30 years in L.A. with the exception of a few months after his birth in Nogales, Arizona. So he's really a product of this region. Uh, he moved on to New York City to fame and fortune, but uh, I think Tijuana, when you read his his book and the biographies, it was a place that had a uh, had a real resonance for him. It was a place that he would go to at moments in his life that were significant moments, uh, including eloping with his childhood sweetheart uh, when I think he was maybe in his teens or late, early 20s and, and causing a lot of ruckus and, and, and anguish for himself as he was rather talented in doing in many ways. So, uh, so I think the music actually grows out of more than just one experience there. It's, it's part of his being sort of a son of our our region broadly broadly considered. Yeah, Tijuana definitely represents many things for Charles Mingus. First of all, he was, as Dan mentioned, born in a border town. Nogales, uh, Arizona is a military outpost. Um, it's below Tucson by about 40 minutes. And uh, there's a Nogales, U.S., and there's Nogales, Mexico. So it's actually a town that sits right on the border as opposed to Tijuana, which is part of Mexico. Um, so that idea of the border, which suddenly has such implications, you know, given today's headlines, is also another reason we wanted to um, focus on this. Um, you will, as we will discover, uh, Tijuana for Mingus was a place of recovery and a place for a kind of personal relief. And um, I urge all of you to use this uh, event today as a doorway into exploring more about Mingus himself. He, of course, wrote one of the most incredible autobiographies in jazz called Beneath the Underdog. And I still have my copy that I bought when I was in high school, and if I drop it open, it opens to the Tijuana chapter. And uh, still... And, and you'll see why. But I urge you to see that. There's also the fact that he wrote the liner notes himself for Tijuana Moods. And we're going to see some of that, too. And the last thing I want to do is just throw out a, 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 a somewhat of an anomaly is that he recorded this in 1957. It's amongst the first longer works that he put together. And yet it wasn't released until 1962, five years later. So rather than trying to answer that question, that's, I just wanted to end our little framing here with a question for you guys to have that in your mind as we go into the conversation that this music actually sat in the can at RCA Records for five years before it was finally released in 1962. So we'll get to all these points soon. And at this point... I think uh, let's bring up our, our eminent panelists now, if you okay. gentlemen would join us. Should I introduce um, them when they come up? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. First, we have a gentleman who is much celebrated pianist and composer in UCSD's Faculty for Integrative Studies. He came here by way of Yale. He's a Guggenheim Fellow, 
a, rec- a recording artist, a Grammy nominee, and a true fusionist. For more than three decades, he has been exploring ways of bringing together jazz with a variety of other styles and forms. His pioneering projects in the field of opera, he's composed five of them, have led him to be called a national treasure. And through his works, and though his works also extend to chamber, choral, and orchestral music, please welcome Anthony Davis. Also, also with us is a noted alto saxophonist who played with Charles Mingus for 12 years from 1960 to 72. And he's probably best known in the mainstream world for having been the sound of the alto sax um, in, Charlie, in the Charlie Parker movie that Clint Eastwood put together in 1988, the biopic Bird. He grew up in Detroit studying with the great pianist Barry Harris. Since then, he's played in bands led by the likes of Lionel Hampton and Dizzy Gillespie, Wynton Marsalis, and Tom Harrell. He's a leader in his own right with more than 25 albums to his own name. Please welcome Charles McPherson. Our last panelist hails from Iowa. He's been a champion of contemporary music for more than 40 years and has served it in a variety of ways as music director of the the La Jolla Symphony and Chorus, as artistic director of the San Francisco Contemporary Music Players, as a guest conductor with a variety of distinguished orchestras, as a recording artist, and as a composer and writer. Among his acclaimed publications is the book The Percussionist's Art, Same Bed, Different Dreams. Here at UCSD, he is Distinguished Professor of Music and holds the Reed Family Presidential Chair. Please welcome Steve Schick. <laughs> Gentlemen, thank you so much for being here. It is an honor to be with you. And I just want to open with the fact that, um, you know, you each are obviously going to have such uh, different perspectives on the idea of singling out one album from a career, on Charles Mingus himself. But I thought we'd throw it to Charles, the other Charles, Charles McPherson uh, first. And, you know, from your personal experience, can you tell us what you remember of Charles during that period that you started with him and the music of Tijuana Moods? Because you were with him when it was actually released, correct? Um, you know, I, I wasn't involved with that uh, that uh, album there, uh, and I joined Mingus in uh, 1959, so that was recorded in, uh, what, 57. So I, I missed that. But we did have occasion to play some of the music from this, from Tijuana Mooth. And I started working with Mingus in uh, 1959, uh, six, uh, 19, late 59, early uh, uh, 1960. And uh, I was with him for 12 years. Um, Danny Richmond, the drummer, was with him longer than I. But um, so uh, it's an interesting, uh, Mingus is like a very interesting, besides a great composer and great musician, he was um, a very interesting man for sure. And um, so I learned a lot from being with him, not just about music, but uh, 
some life lessons as well. Um, and uh, it was an interesting period for me. And um, I mean, I have a thousand stories that we could talk about. But um, this, this particular album, um, I had to re refresh my memory, so I, I YouTubed and listened to it. And I was telling um, Anthony earlier that when I joined Mingus, I was like 20, 19, 20 years old. And um, I don't think I quite comprehend, I wasn't able to truly comprehend in depth how great Mingus was and, and uh, because I was so young. So now when I listen to Mingus with today's ears, I'm amazed, quite frankly, of um, how talented he was. And in particular, this really truly is a great, great album. Thank you. Anthony, you, you, you were in New York during the time that Mingus was still active, correct? Yes, yes. I, I used to go see him a lot when I was a, a student. I would, we'd, we'd all get in a car and drive down to the Five Spot or somewhere to Three Saints to hear Mingus. Um, George Lewis and I were, were amazing. Uh, we loved Mingus's music, so, so we would go as much as possible. Both of us wanted to play with Mingus. We were de desperate to be because you know we loved we loved his music and and our band at Yale we 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 uh, all of us transcribed different Mingus compositions. So I so we were doing meditations on integration and uh, unusual pieces too. Some of the not not the that's trying to do the longer suites and, and et cetera. And uh, Mingus was always you know uh, someone we looked up to and and. Uh, uh, I, I was a, also a big fan of Don Pullen's playing, who was a pianist with uh, Mingus at the time, too. And so I, I, I loved, loved hearing that, that group. That's a whole book in itself, is uh, Mingus's sidemen and how he put his bands together and, and uh, that incredible legacy, you know. Um, you know, the, the stature that Mingus had during those years as a composer... Was it very present? Was it very uh, some, uh, influential on what you were doing? Because I use the word fusionist. In well, I, I think you. that I think that's really interesting because, in a way, you can extend the idea of border because the, the in a way Mingus explored the borders, the borders in terms of music as well, the borders between classical music and jazz, the border, borders between. Uh, bebop and free jazz, for example, all that all that is present in his music, and and he was he's one who found an intermediary space, and I think probably the mo of all the all composers in the music, probably maybe the most successful at merging and and, and, and finding his own voice within that liminal space, and uh, that's one of the things that always excited me. And one thing I would dis differ with you about is I would put Mingus at the same level with with Miles and Monk and. <laughs> I mean, I would have no problem doing that. And I think that for me, uh, he's one of the eminent, I mean, he's, he's to me, he's like Ellington and Strayhorn on that level as a composer and uh, as, as someone who really carved out a, on his own space in music. And also, uh, I mean, just to look at the harmonic sophistication of his music, look, look at the, the structural innovations that he used, yeah, how he's able to expand from song forms, et cetera, and what he did with the blues, all those things. I mean, it's just uh, uh, discovering Mingus in the, in the 1950s all the way through the 60s and later, you see that, that, that Mingus was 
car was developing a, a completely new language that was highly sophisticated that drew on the past again the the border image the border of also drawing from it's also the border between the past and the future I mean merging that the idea of what the what the music of the past the, the influence of Ellington and Strayhorn and Charlie Parker and Art Tatum that's always always evident in his music and then later his his own unique expression and, and also in a way addressing Ornette Coleman and the and the people who were who were you know the the, that who would emerge in New York in 1959, you can see see that that he was he was had his own answer to that music too. You know the 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 way that uh, Mingus falls in and out of kind of mainstream awareness is is what I was referring to. But uh, one one thing that uh, that you touch upon is this kind of open earedness to uh, other traditions, etc., especially percussive and rhythmic ideas. And I know this is kind of your uh, um, your area of expertise, Steve. You know the idea of uh, bringing in different rhythmic traditions. And that is so prevalent and such an important part of Tijuana Moods. I know that you did some listening of it too. Um, could you comment on? Sure. I'd, li- I'd like to follow. First of all, I'm, I'm honored and I'm also humbled to be in the presence of people who with this depth of knowledge about Mingus. My approach is, is uh, probably in a, from a slightly different direction, but you've already touched on that, Ashley. And that is that I, as a percussionist, I grew up in a kind of a universe of multiplicity so that the first instruments I played came from all over the world. A snare drum that has a European tradition and a gong that has an Asian tradition, bongos that come from Latin America, different kinds of drums which are present in Africa and practically all over the world. So embedded in the art that I have practiced since I was five years old is this tension of of something which seeks to transgress its boundaries. And since Tijuana... Is the is the is the focus of this uh, is the narrative focus of the album, and since we are we think about that a great deal, I was really attracted to this music, and and I can give you some interesting for me you know fascinating examples from the songs. I mean, for for me, when I listen to Los Mariachis, for example, and you hear the trumpet that alternately sounds like uh, a voice in a Mexican band and a jazz player and could actually be not far from the sound of a trumpet at the beginning of Mahler 5. And it's all wrapped up together, and you can't tease it apart. And you can't hyphenate it. And you, you can't try to silo it. That, to me, is the most exciting kind of, kind of thing. So when Anthony's talking about the border issues, uh, just to put this into perspective of the festival that Dan alluded to, to earlier, uh, when Martha Gilmer and the San Diego Symphony asked me now more than two years ago to curate this festival... The original conversation I had with Martha was how to get out of the concert hall, how to get into the community, how to embrace this place in this time. And so our initial brief was to say San Diego is more than the gridded streets downtown. UCSD is more than a, than a, than a university on the top of a hill in La Jolla. We have brothers and sisters across the border in Tijuana. What does that actually really mean for us? So our conversations, Dan and I together, were designed to trap the electricity that comes from music which simply will not be contained within the facile boundaries of conventional categories. And I think when you listen to this, this album and you imagine, first of all, that 
poignant period of gestation where for five years it existed and people didn't hear it. When you see how it levels critique at our no pre-existing notions of what jazz is, what composition is, what orchestration is, where what, what the difference between San Diego and Tijuana is, it's really extraordinarily poignant. It feels like there is this kind of birth that happens when you listen to that recording. Thank you. You know, the, um, there are some points that you bring up that also feed back to the idea that, you know, <clears throat> Mingus was obviously, uh, we like to use the term purple patch, you know, like he was hidden in 1957 creatively with the bands he was putting together. And I thought it would help both with an image like this to show that he was both a performing artist and a recording artist, that he was very career conscious, that he was very aware of how to, you know, advance himself economically, you know, and to sort of bring it down to that level too um, and talk about the year 1957 and the fact that he was in the studio many times all these albums were recorded, not released, but recorded in 1957. And they include um, his final album for Atlantic, The Clown, a trio album, um, of course, Tijuana Moods, and two for Bethlehem. So he was recording for th uh, four different labels uh, during this point and was in the studio a lot and really had his game together you know, and of course, this album comes out in, in uh, uh, 1962, five years later. This idea, Charles, I'd like to throw this back to you, of Mingus the leader, Mingus the, you know, taking care of business as, as far as a, a career builder. Um, yeah. Can you talk about that? And, you know, was yeah. Charles open yeah. about that? Yeah, he, well, I mean, you learn a lot just from being with him. <clears throat> you know, the interesting thing about Mingus was uh, how, how he was multidimensional. And um, it manifested itself in everything he did. Um, he, he was also... Um, he, he, there, you, you can't really put him in a box either as a person or even uh, or his artistic um, output. Um, and he's a study in dichotomy in a way. Uh, he used to, when we would learn music and at rehearsals, he had a term called organized chaos, which, you know, is a contradiction in terms in a way, but not for him. So when we would rehearse and play, if we were too clean, and too too accurate and too pristine, he wasn't happy with that. And it was too clean, too affected. Uh, if we weren't clean enough, and he wasn't happy with that. So therefore, his term was organized chaos, where there's just enough organization to keep it together, but still free enough and loose enough to have the feeling of spontaneity. And uh, he, he really did that well. And that's, that's a very thin line uh, to, uh, to deal with, but he knew how to do it, and he did do it. Um, so he was interesting that way. Another thing about Mingus is um, he, was, he was very much informed in all music. He knew 
pretty much all of the European tradition and used it, used the harmonies. He was very much aware. Uh, the African aspect of jazz music, very much aware of all of that. Um, so here's a guy who understood understood the whole thing that what jazz is and understood it well he could do it well and all of the elements that make jazz jazz he did all of those well he did his homework and uh, when he wrote uh, it reflected the world it, it reflected um, pretty much what's going on so he, he was an interesting character and um, he was a total artist. Mingus wrote great poetry. I've seen it and read it. Very good. He could paint. He was, he was just a, like a Renaissance guy. He, and of course, his music speaks for itself. Uh, he was very politically astute for that time, you know, during the period. He was very much aware of uh, everything that was going on around him politically. He had something to say and would say it on the bandstand. Um, he wrote it, it was in his music. So when I was with Mingus, it was from like 1959 till 72. So all of the 60s and everything that was going on in the world, and there was some interesting stuff going on <laughs> in the 60s, believe you. It was great to be a young person in New York City in, in the early 60s. But Mingus was very much aware of everything politically, socially. He wrote tunes about it. Uh, he wrote poetry about it. And um, so he, he was a, a very interesting person. And, um, and because he was, his music was a reflection of him. And he was a good businessman, I must say that. Um, when we worked with Mingus, he uh, he incorporated the band. Now that was kind of unheard of in the jazz world during during those days. So his band was a cooperation. Uh, we got salary checks. You know, if we were laid off and we didn't work, we we collected unemployment insurance. I mean, he you know, I would be on the road with him traveling and he'd get a receipt for a package of chewing gum you know i mean he just collected and he did everything that you're supposed to do that's unusual for a person to be that talented to wear more than one hat but he was very concerned in getting every penny that he thought he deserved and did everything he's supposed to do at least you know in terms of being righteous and correct money wise and still being the artist that he was. Uh, he, he was really something. Anthony, I mean, did... Yeah, yeah, he had his own record label with, uh, that was started with Max Roach. Uh, so he was, as, a, as a, music, a music and business, he was really a pioneer and, and, and quite progressive. I mean, there was music, for example, that he couldn't release on Columbia Records, the, the version of Fables of Fathers with the lyrics. Like uh, he did the Fables of Fathers Mingus Aoun, which was, didn't, of course, didn't have the lyrics. But then uh, the the version he did on day, on his own record label, you could hear, you know, the the uh, 
the the lyrics to to the music and i and i and i think he was uh, as charles said he was so politically aware and that was something was that was very important to me and inspirational to me someone who was really thinking of music as actually a vehicle for uh, for not 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 just in artistic expression but also the ex- the expression of of the time expression of, of also a, the idea of it being part of a progressive vision and i think mingus mingus felt that very deeply and uh and i and i think that that inspired me and others to think about being being a committed art, artist being an artist who who is ad, in, in trying to change and advance society and change change I mean, you try, kind of ch- trying to change the world with your music, and I think Mingus inspired is one of the major inspirations for that. Could I add just something? Uh, do you mind? Uh, we, we've we've been now talking a little bit about economy, and it occurs to me that that when people talk about genre, often the first thing that comes to our mind is aesthetic somehow, some style of music, some way of working in music, but genre is effectively an economic category. It is an economic category to the extent that when you used to go to a record store, but when you go to an online record store, you still you need to know what bin you're in, right, and all that sort of stuff. But when you think about the fact that the genres that are the most defined today also have architectures of economy surrounding them. In other words, if you if you are a jazz artist, and I'll put all these in quotation marks, or a classical artist, or a whatever, a rock artist, that not that means not just that that is the music that you play, but these are the presenters that you know. These are the halls that invite you. These are the people who sell tickets for you. There is an entire economic apparatus around it. And the reason I mention this is that I think when, when, when it so happens that people confuse the economy of genre by by cross-fertilizing in the way that Mingus did. Or, and, but there are lots of other examples. I mean, you, you could talk about that in, in, with, with Ellington, for example. Even geographically, with Ornette moving from one coast to the, to the other. When those lines get crossed, there, are, there, is a, there is a kind of source of tension. When a classical musician such as Edgar Meyer suddenly wants to do something else, then people don't know where to, where to put that person. And I, so, I, so I wonder, as I come back to that, that very poignant issue of, of the release date, and I don't have any inside information about this, but it could be that part of what was happening with Tijuana Moods was a kind of genre confusion that meant that the economic architecture surrounding the album didn't have a place to, to put it. That being said, it seems to me that it's our fundamental responsibility right now to question genre and to cross-fertilize the economic institutions that feed it such that one, is ex- one expects, uh, for example, a jazz player to engage in composition as well as improvisation. One expects a classical symphony orchestra to get out of the concert hall from time to time. One expects a singer to be able to pick up an instrument. All of these kinds of things which formerly were siloed now are both not just invitations but I think also obligations for us. Thank you. That's that's a great way of like um, both encapsulating what we were just saying and also segueing into what I wanted to kind of uh, uh, return to which is the idea of how Mingus felt about this recording himself. Did you want to say something Charles? No, I mean, uh, that was uh, very interesting what he said. I, 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 told, I don't want to uh, divert uh, the course of, of things, but um, that's exactly right. And what happens, there are people, there are business people between the artists and between the people who actually set these boundary, b- boundaries up. 
and people sort of just get in line and go with that. And um, as opposed to choosing things that they like, not what they're told to. So when you go, you know, like things are in this area and the classical music, uh, jazz is here, this is there. If people were free to not know what these categories were and they just took a chance, let me see that, then you'd be surprised. And not to, not to hog the show, but a great example of that. I happened to YouTube something and I saw Johnny Cash and Louis Armstrong. Okay, so it's like, Oh, I got to see this. So, so now for all practical purpose in terms of people who run the record industries and who tell us how to think and all that stuff, you would think Johnny Cash and Louis Armstrong would be miles apart. And that's how would that work? Well, let me tell you, when I, 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 turn, I look at it and I couldn't believe it. Here are two guys, country western guy. Louis Armstrong is Louis Armstrong, and these guys sang a song together, and I've got goose pimples because it was absolutely beautiful. And whatever common denominator these two guys had, they got it, and it worked, and the audience, which was basically, it was Johnny Cash's show, so it's a country western audience, they just went wild. And it was like, it's right, is that when you got great people, great artists, that, listen, it doesn't make any difference if they are doing this, or if they, there's a common denominator, and when you put them together, it can work. And so that's true. We, we are sort of told where to go, what to like, and that, that you just, that, see, and some of that is we do what we're told to do. And... Uh, some of that is we have to take a chance on listening to choosing things that have absolutely nothing to do with what you think you're supposed to do. Just do it. Take a chance, you know. I tell my students at NYU that uh, if you really want to see the future, look between the categories. Look between the genres, you know, because it's the genre-defying that really uh, spells where, where the music is going. Um, you know, and then there are those that cause the ripples on the lakes, and then there, there are those who take a cannonball dive into it, and I think that's what we're talking about here. Um, so to continue with how Charles himself um, thought about this album, first of all, he hated the name Charlie, okay? Um, he was Charles Mingus, and if you, if, I don't know if I should have pointed that out in the 1957 albums. I think three out of five, he's Charlie Mingus. Um, but uh, as the years went by, that, that, that faded away. Uh, in 1962, when this album finally came out, um, the, there is that idea that the world finally caught up with the idea of this fusion that you're talking about, Steve. And this is what Charles thought about the album. This is the best record I ever made. Charles Mingus. So, um, you know, the uh, idea of actually putting his name and words and thoughts on this album was actually as a participant in this world of, uh, you know, uh, self-promotion, you know, and marketing oneself, 
you know, and so uh, I think this is, you know, a kind of great evidence of what you guys are talking about. Well, uh, I think part of Charles's thing, the reason Mingus would write a lot, a lot about music also is that almost self-defense, because there wasn't any way, in any way, the critical world had not caught up with, with, that, with the music. And, and what they were talking about in the music really, really was, didn't go very deeply into what, 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 what Mingus was doing. And I think that's something that our, all artists have to think about, especially those of us who live on the edge, live on that edge and that, that space between things, that we have, to, we have to try to define our music to, to our audience and also to the people who are going to write about it because uh, the, a lot of times they don't have the language and they don't, they don't understand what, what, what's really going on with it. And also they don't have an understanding of, of the links to the tradition that we are linked to a tradition, yet we're doing something innovative at the same time. And I think that that's something that Mingus embodied in, ma in many respects. And, and, and it, it, what I love about Mingus, he's always looking backward and looking forward and looking, I mean, I mean you say, take, for example, Dizzy Moods, you know, which is based on Wood and You, the uh, Dizzy Gillespie tune. So, but that's in part of his music. If, if, if Sigmund Freud's wife were your mother, you know, all the things you could be by now if Sigmund Freud's wife was your mother or, you know, or what love or, you know, all these different examples of how he took took uh, in a way that the, there's a kind of commentary about his relation to the past that makes us revisit it and look look at it with a, with fresh ears and a, and a fresh perspective. And I think uh, uh, also the relation to Ellington and and Strayhorn, you know, the Ellington sound of love, you know, all or or uh, open letter to Duke, you know, or I mean, all those things in which he 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 sort he sort of speaking musically to Ellington. You know, uh, and, and realizing that that's that that that's the kind of the father of our music in many respects. But but that Mingus Mingus had his own stories to tell. You know, it's it's great that you mentioned the idea of writing because uh, this essay that's on the left side really goes deep into both the reasons for the music, but the music itself. And he does something that I, I don't often see. I mean, Bill Evans on kind of blue, or. Charles on, on Tijuana Moods, the idea of the musician taking the chance to explain his music in words. And most of the time, you know, like John Coltrane again and again was asked to do interviews for liner notes, and he would say, music speaks for itself. Okay, all right, I'll give you a 15-minute interview. This was like Nat Hentoff. But if you take a look at this I mean, he actually opens up the essay by talking not only about a very specific musician, in this case, Clarence Shaw, the trumpeter on the um, uh, album, but a very specific solo that Clarence takes in Dizzy's, mood, in Dizzy's mood. You know, the idea of how he feels about this solo and what he really wants to do is draw the listener's ear in. And I thought we would play this because, in a way, it's like Charles's own choice of what he wanted everybody to go to right away. So if, if we're okay with that, we'll play a little bit of music for you.
Dizzy's Mood, the opening track from uh, Tijuana Moods, and that's Clarence Shaw's uh, uh, solo. Uh, I mean, that kind of five years later, he not only remembers the solo, but he remembers what happened in the solo in the studio, that he actually pulled the trumpet out, took the time to empty the spit valve, and then you know, continue with the conversation, as he says. I mean, Charles, I find that amazing, that that kind of memory, I mean, is obviously part of Mingus's genius. Yeah, and uh, also, um, yeah, he had, Mingus had a, a, very, a fantastic mind. Uh, some interesting things happened musically. There is a tempo change, or, uh, not a tempo change, but a meter change, I guess. Yeah, um, so uh, now that that Mingus would would do that quite often. It's a certain maybe four four, and then all of a sudden he'd go into three four or some something else. Um, a lot of people got credit for doing things like that later. Uh, Mingus did a lot of things in the fifties uh, first, actually, uh, whereas people in the sixties got credit for doing something supposedly new. Uh, Mingus did it in 1950, but he didn't really get the, the credit for whatever reason that some of the people in the 60s got credit for innovating this, innovating that. Well, Mingus done that, you know. Um, the, the, this, uh, this particular tune, now this shows uh, Mingus's, uh, just his, the variety of, of, of uh, musical inspiration and knowledge he has. That's a typical bebop tune. It's it's really a tribute to Dizzy Gillespie. So Mingus could be there. If it's bebop, he could be there. And he, he he wasn't you know, it wasn't like, well it's not good. No, it was good. And he he understood that language and could deal with it. There are other tunes on there that have absolutely nothing really to do with bebop. And he could be there and understand that. Uh, there are other tunes that are different from both. It sounds like uh, Stravinsky or something. He could be there, and he understood that. And this is just why Mingus is great, because it's an interesting thing about innovation. There are people, I've always thought this, that you can come to the table with what you think is new, but don't shortstop anything that happened before you. And to me, that's true innovation. You know, it's like, uh, okay, so you're not dealing with swing because you're bringing something else. But don't not be able to because the greatest innovators could do very well everything that happened before them. And when they come to the table with their own uniqueness, then that's beautiful. But they could do it, though. So this is what I mean by, um, so Mingus is, is innovative, but you can hear the history of jazz. You can hear some history of European music, Spanish music, African music, uh, American music. It's, it's all there. And that is like, it's like musical soup, gumbo. You know, and and it's wonderful. Do you mind if I? Uh, I I really would just like to geek out a little bit on the rhythm there because I think that's extraordinary, right? So the 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 thing about that is, I mean, this is what 
I might have I might call a, a kind of metric modulation, that, you know, so that you take some aspect of the pre-existing rhythm and you build a new rhythm on it, and so that. The, but the sense for us, the perceptual sense, is that that you you take something in four and you build a faster three. But if you go from a from a, a meter of four to a meter of three, what it means is that the downbeats or the strong beats come at you that much faster. You know, four, you get four in, in, in the time of three. And so it, it seems like the music is all of a sudden rushing towards you, although you've been hearing it all along. That's the thing. It's not actually new. It's just a reorientation of it. But what is fascinating for me is not so much getting into the metric modulation, but getting out of it. Because what that, what that moment of faster tempo does is the same thing that an architectural device like the way Frank Lloyd Wright built the entrance to the, uh, to the Universalist chapel in, in, uh, in, uh, in Evanston, uh, if I've got that cor- correct, I think that's right, where the entry is compressed. And so when you are compressed, then you come into a space which is actually normal size, but your sense of it is that it's enormous. So you come into that metric modulation and you think, oh, wow, this is exciting because the downbeats are coming so much faster than I expect. But the great thing is the, the leap you take out into this now seemingly much bigger space after you get out of the metric modulation. But in point of fact, the space hasn't really changed at all, but he's manipulated your perception of it in such a way that it feels bigger. I think that's extraordinary. And that sort of multiplicity is a kind of like boots on the ground basic rhythmic version of all of that, I think. So we do, we, it's not just poetic talk about adding things together. You actually hear him do it there. I think it's really great. It's amazing how the details come out when we look at something just specifically for that's only a minute and a half long. But I know that you yourself chose an excerpt that you want us to listen to. If you don't mind, this is the, uh, this is the percussion geek in me coming out. You just have to hear this castanet playing. It's just unbelievable. That's astonishing. Do you mind if I tell you what I love about that? I'm so sorry. I, uh, I'm, I'm a little too excited right now not to, not to jump in. But, okay, so fantastic playing at the castanets. But what's really marvelous about that is that sort of textural rhyming. So you have castanets, which sound like the palmas, in other words, the clapping, and that sound like the, 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 the rims on the drum. And so you have these three things that kind of are fused together in this, in this timbral alloy of, of, of musical color in the same way that, that you ask yourself, is that a voice? Is it a bass? Is it, what is that? And, you know, and these are... These are values you see elsewhere in, 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 in music. I mean, I'm, uh, I think this is an extraordinary example of it, but if you listen to the beginning of Mahler First Symphony and you hear, you wonder, is that a real bird or uh, a piccolo, for example? Or if you listen just before the reprise of Sgt. Pepper and you wonder, is that a duck or a guitar? These moments where you take things which seem so distant from one another and you bring them closer 
so that texturally and 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 timbrely color in, in in the world of color they start to speak to each other how is it that a castanet and a hand clap and a rim and a bass can talk to each other that way i think it's just extraordinary Thank you for that choice. And it ends with a very obvious edit. I just want to point out that, you know, the two very long pieces that make up Tijuana Moods, that are part of the five tracks in Tijuana Moods, Isabel's Table Dance and Los Mariachis, are assembled tracks. And the idea of a jazz artist who is all about improvisation, apparently, but utilizing the studio to actually create assembled tracks where piece by piece by piece they're recorded and later edited together. That kind of went against general jazz you know, pedagogy of that time, of, of what they, you were supposed to do. Are you, I mean, you guys I know are aware of this. Do you see this as one of those groundbreaking pieces where, you know, Mingus was willing to utilize the technology of the day to... Um, yeah, I, well, I think that in a way he did, was, this is another thing he wasn't giving credit for. He, they always credit Miles for that. You know, when they look at Bitches Brew, for example, I mean, where... where was Which the is 1969, 12 69, years later. yeah. Well, and then I saw, I think the closest, like, Sketches of Spain probably might be, like, that's like 50, what, 58, 59? 60. 60. Oh, shoot. Uh, yeah, and, and, the, and there's parts of Miles Ahead the same year. Yeah, but I think, uh, uh, you know, so... So I think that he, he's thinking about the larger structure. He's thinking structurally. And that's what's so interesting about, about Mingus, too, that he has this in, inherent sense of structure that, that includes the improvisation. It's not, it's not that as if there's a, you know, a head and an improvisation and a head again. It's not the predictable form or structure. His idea that, that, they're, they're, it's a, that the improvisation is included in the whole design of the piece. And that's one thing that always intrigued me about about Mingus is that his music had a congruity and a and it, and it had a sense of a narrative a meaning a me, a meaning that that went through the what the improvisers did as well so 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 uh, and you notice in many of the th- pieces that there, he goes through different kinds of structures there might be a blues for a chorus then you know play on changes for a little bit then uh, you know then it might be a unaccompanied solo for a while I mean all that stuff is to, that sort of breaks up breaks up expectation and also allows you to create an original structure, original musical structure that, that, that includes the, the improviser. That's collaborative in the sense that includes the improviser, but also coherent and, and cogent as a, as a musical idea. Mind if I add something uh, very briefly to that, and that is that this album, uh, with a couple of others that you've already mentioned, t- fundamentally shift the function of an album, uh, which a recording, in, for the most part, is, in earlier times, was a simple document. It was the idea behind it was to reproduce a live experience, and so it was successful if you felt like you were there, and it was unsuccessful if you if you didn't feel like you were there. But when you actually start constructing a, a, a recording you, with the kind of radical editing that you're talking about, with the sort of compositional sense that Anthony was just alluding to, then you're actually working more like a sculptor working on an actual physical object than you are simply using the recording to document what you have done. It becomes, the recording itself becomes the object of art and not simply the representative of that. I want to just kind of close with one other aspect, and that is a kind of obvious thing, the idea that a title of one of the tracks is even called Table Dance, 
as in in 1962, I wonder how many you know kids would have picked up the album and said, Daddy, what's a table dance, you know? And the idea of the sexuality and the kind of the, the which kind of reflects the muscularity that's in the music, the the, the very male kind of uh, gene coming forward in Mingus's music, I think is a big part of him. And uh, uh, Mingus, of course, refers to the Tijuana experience in his liner notes in a very uh, focused way. And one of the other reasons why my copy of uh, Beneath the Underdog still opens up to the Tijuana chapter. Um, By the way, I, I met Isabel. Oh, you met Isabel? <laughs> yeah. Who yeah, we, the lady on there, the, 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 that, that's a beautiful album cover. But the lady standing next to the jute box, that is Isabel. She's the table dancer. <laughs> and what can you share with us? <laughs> I don't know. I, I blacked out. <laughs> no. No, 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 I was kidding. I was just kidding. No, no, I was kidding. No, but I mean, I did, I did meet her, and she was uh, acute uh, at, at the risk of, yeah, she, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she's credited as uh, playing the castanets, yes, and that's yeah. her voice. And dancing on the table. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Indeed. You know, obviously, Tijuana represented many things for, for Charles Mingus. I was 19. I what did I know, you know? <laughs> um, in the uh, liner notes, he, he talks about the fact that he's recently divorced, so he's single again, and him and Danny Richmond go to, f- like, forget the... Uh, the, uh, the drama of that episode in his life in Tijuana, so it serves that purpose. Um, uh, but, of course, his music has this kind of mu- muscularity, this, this machismo that comes through. And as the last point, do you want to talk about, um, you know, comment on any aspect, that aspect or any aspect of Mingus's music? Well, I, th- I think that he had, it's not only the, the masculine muscle thing, he had the sensitivity. He had, see, that there again is the, dic- you know, is the high electric, uh, he, you know, and multidimensional he was. He certainly had that one. Uh, but he also had the tender, um, you know, sensitive side, too. So he, he was a... It was a contradiction, you know, I mean, in terms, I mean, if I can relate a short story uh, to show you how how this man was, uh, you couldn't necessarily uh, put him in a box. He um, he was he's known to be quite confrontational. Right. Uh, He would physically get into fights with people, you know, about if they were too loud at the club or talking too much, he would physically go out and tell people to shut up sometimes that would end up in being you know something but um he so he was all that but yet still he had a very nice heart uh, underneath all that and uh, i'll just do a brief story we did a benefit for a, a poet named kenneth patchen and um he was sick and needed money so Ming, he was a personal friend of mingus mingus did a benefit at hiring us the band to play for, for uh, to raise money for this guy's hospital bills. So at the end of the gig, um, he started doling out $5 bills to everybody in the band, you know, just to give them something. And everybody in the band took the $5. And when he got to me, I just looked at the $5 and said, well, what was this supposed to do? So give it to him, since he's the one that needs it, and put it in the in the kitty. And so now Mingus, here's this hardened 
man, he looked at me and his eyes welled up with tears. And he just said, thanks, Charles. And that was it. So uh, the interesting thing about that, from that point on, he had categorized me as being a nice person. So uh, because I'm the only one that didn't take the money. And uh, and so I could later on, I could do no wrong. I could be late for the gig. (laughs) I could be acting really stupid on the bandstand, which I did often. Uh, He would just look the other way. Um, and he would never bother me. He would, because he had me in this special stuff, and uh, so I never really had any issues with him. You know, you know these are the tunes that are on uh, Tijuana Moods, and that sensitivity that you were talking about, uh, Flamingo, the uh, his rendition of it, which closes out the uh, the album, is really speaks to that side of him too. That vulnerability, which is actually a, a masculine trait that uh, you know led Miles Davis, of course, exploited in a in a in a very big way during this time period. Please let's thank our panelists: Steve Schick, Charles McPherson, Anthony Davis, and thank you all for being here. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.